Hello and welcome to Lou Harry Gets Real, a podcast about arts, culture, play, and puns, and stumbling forward through life. I'm Frankie Bolda, your announcer and co-host for this evening, and I'm thrilled to welcome you to this experiment in conversation and music recorded live from the Oxford Room of the Aristocrat Pub. Welcome! Hello! Our guests tonight are singer-songwriter Sarah Grain and Richard McCoy from Exhibit Columbus, plus all of these good folks who have filled the Oxford Room tonight. Now please, welcome your host, the co-author of The Encyclopedia of Guilty Pleasures, and Know Your Zombies, and a former editor at way too many publications, Lou Harry! <laughs> Thank you, Frankie. You're very welcome. See, I knew nothing about Indianapolis when I moved here in the mid-90s. My image of Indiana came from vague memories of watching some of the Indy 500 combined with a deep love of the movie Breaking Away. Yes, I know Hoosiers is the one people always point to, but I put Breaking Away, apart from the awkward freeze frame at the end, a notch above it. Rudy is a distant third for those keeping score. Now, since moving here decades ago, I have yet to go swimming in a limestone quarry or race bicycles. And I've been to the Indianapolis 500 all of once, though I usually listen to it while doing yard work. And I really, I get into it, have a good time, love the parade, all that kind of thing. But neither of those things has defined this place for me. So I grew up in Wildwood a Jersey Shore town that's pretty easy to describe, at least on the surface. You have a five-mile beach, a boardwalk about half that length, honky-tonk in the summer, ghost town in the winter. There, you have an image. Now, for college, in my early career, I moved to Philadelphia. Now, depending on who you talk to, you can define Philly by its sports teams, by its history, by its food. Rocky running through the Italian market, then up the steps of the Philadelphia Museum of Art, pretty much pulls all that into one movie sequence. Those definitions, though, of Wildwood in Philadelphia are clearly simplistic. They might be helpful for attracting tourists or relate, you know, relocating businesses, but I wonder how helpful and even necessary they are to the average person. Do people who live in Casey, Illinois, define themselves in relation to the world's largest mailbox? How many people in Louisville don't realize or care that they have one of the best new play festivals in the country, right there at the Humana Festival at Actors Theater of Louisville? While it's difficult to define a place, it's also, I think, terribly important to embrace what is unique about a place. Sports at their best can help do that, although I don't see fundamental real differences between franchises from one city to another, forgive me. The arts and architecture do, or at least can, so can food. They can also lead to a place of that where people, where people in a place chase recognition rather than improve the quality of life. In a world where competition is celebrated so much, it's easy to compare cities by asking who has the better whatever. What was Indy the best at or the second best at? What do we have the largest or the most of? Now, outside endorsements can be wonderful. So-and-so said we have the best airport in the country. That's great. Roller coaster enthusiasts call Holiday World's coasters among the best in the world. That's great. Columbus, Indiana's architecture was rediscovered yet again by a national magazine. That's always wonderful. But how much does that impact the citizens of that community? And how much does that contribute to livability? 
If you don't have the biggest city park in the country, does that somehow diminish the value of your parks? When my would-be employer had me flown in from Philadelphia, uh, my first visit here, and introduced me to Indianapolis, she clearly wanted me to, to, she wanted to get me to feel like I could live here. That meant not taking me to a mall with big box stores and not taking me to the same things we had in Philadelphia. It meant a drive by the Phoenix Theater to prove that there was indigenous arts, showing me the Children's Museum of Indianapolis because I had young kids, taking me to dinner at what then was one of our only Mexican restaurants, El Sol, <laughs> to show that the city wasn't as homogenous as the state's image and showing me the Indianapolis Museum of Art, a solid museum whose coolness was raised significantly because it was free to the public. Now, a quarter of a century or so later, I still can't give a short answer when someone asks, what's Indianapolis or Indiana like? Even though there's a lot here that I do like. I'm not a marketer. I don't like overselling things or oversimplifying things. Tonight, we're gonna talk about place, I think quite a bit, about embracing what's natural about a place and also figuring out what to impose on it and how we make those decisions about what to add to a place. We're going to hear music birthed here, talk about a truly world-class architectural town and what's happening there, both to enhance the lives of the locals and spread the word to those beyond its borders. What are we proud of? What makes the place we've chosen to live or where circumstances brought us unique? And what should we just leave alone? Those are some of the things we're going to talk about. Welcome to episode seven of Lou Harry Gets Real. <laughs> And with that, I turn to my co-host, Frankie Bolda. I'm thrilled that Frankie is here. Frankie, is if, if you go to theater in Indianapolis, you may have seen her um, pretty much the host. I thought I heard somebody say, no. 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 She's, she was at Phoenix Theater's holiday show this year. She was a mainstay of that. Also a frequent performer and is involved in uh, comedy sports, Indianapolis. Um, one of the things going on right now, which again, one of these things that is unique to Indianapolis, which is cool, and people around the country who are listening and around the world can be a little jealous, we have the Gal Pal Comedy Festival. Yes, we do. Now, I, yeah, applaud that. Thank you for that. Now, I, I did 10 years as a stand-up comic, back in mid-80s to mid-90s, worked in clubs, mostly on the East Coast, and at, at, at confession, I confessed this earlier to you guys, I mm -hmm. probably should admit it. I worked briefly for Donald Trump. This is the truth. I was the host of the open mic night at Trump Castle Casino. You were like the fool to the king. I was the fool to the king. And if you, um, what's that? Yeah, I got paid. And the thing is, getting paid there, when you get paid in the casino, they would always pay me in cash because they hoped that you'd spend it on the way out. That's so sneaky. And you guys are a great crowd. I could tell you, if you are in a casino and you've lost a lot of money, and they've said, here, here are some comps to a show. And you go, okay, that's nice. It's the open mic night at the comedy club. <laughs> that's a rough crowd, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, gosh. Anyway, what was my point? My point was what? My point You're was comedy at the time. Yeah. Comedy from mid-80s to mid-90s. If I, on the rare occasion that I worked with a female comic in a show, usually comedy shows are three acts, mm -hmm. opener, middle, and headliner. Sure. And that's how people remembered us too. That opening guy, that middle guy, that last guy. Yep. Stress on guy. Mm -hmm. They were always guys. Rarely was a woman given a slide. Maybe she was the middle act. They wouldn't have a woman headline and they wouldn't have a woman open the show mm. and hosting the show. This was just, nobody admitted but there was incredible sexism in the business. I am, and it's still out there. I oh, know yeah. it's still out there. 
but I'm thrilled with the number of women comics we're seeing on Netflix, women headliners we're seeing, and the fact that Indianapolis has birthed a female comedy festival. Oh, yeah. Tell us about that. How did that happen? Sure. Uh, so uh, the Gal Pal Comedy Festival is now in its sixth year. Uh, so it's, it is, it's become a mainstay, which is pretty great. Uh, it is a mix of stand-up comedy, like you are familiar with, uh, improv comedy, which I'm even more familiar <laughs> with, uh, sketch. It's just a mix of all of these different things. And all of the uh, performers that you see throughout the evening are either women, female identity, identifying uh, non-binary individuals. Uh, it's uh, no straight white boys, <laughs> which I'm so sorry. Oh, well, you no straight no... white boys is the name of a Chicago-based improv group, isn't it? it <laughs> everything's the name of a Chicago-based improv group. Yeah, pull any three words. Yep, anything you're like, oh, yes, okay, yep, anything. Uh, and how has... has... The has there been a growth of audience? Has audience perception changed? Oh, over sure. The years? Uh, we have, uh, as of the recording of this podcast, right. uh, we've had two of our five nights of the festival so far. It's every Friday night in March at CSC Indianapolis, home of comedy sports, mm -hmm. uh, at that venue. Um, and so it's, uh, I, I've lost yeah. track of my thought here. There you go. Um, so selling out, filling a oh, crowd. Oh, yeah, yeah. Room, we had, first night was a full house. We had to turn people away. Um, Friday, we had, it was about two thirds full. Uh, so it's, I mean, it's. So people it's, are coming up. It's, it's, people are coming up. We have, uh, and this is our third uh, year of the very last week of the festival uh, is actually part of our uh, CSZ Women's Weekend. Uh, for that weekend, we actually invite performers from uh, Comedy Sports. Right. Uh, Comedy Sports is uh, nationwide and also one in Manchester, England, too. Mm -hmm. We invite uh, uh, women or non-binary players from across the country, and no nobody's from Man Manchester's come yet, but we always invite <laughs> them uh, to come to Indianapolis. So it's all women teams competing. Oh, yeah. Every, uh, and Every perform well, every performance. Uh, so every comedy sports match. So Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. Anything that you see that last weekend in March in Indianapolis is uh, uh, they're all women performers. And uh, nobody walking out and saying, "Wait, women aren't funny. I don't want to see this." Oh, <laughs> I I don't know what the rating of this is. I have some choice words for people who say that women aren't funny. Do you still hear that? Ah, uh, not as much. Uh, I went to I went to theater school, um, so that's well spent <laughs> money. Uh, uh, so I, uh, but frequently I would have like a, or like at our last performance or whatever, people would pull me aside and they're like, "You're funny," and like like it was a, like it was a secret that I didn't know. And they're like, "Did you know you're funny?" I'm like, "I did." <laughs> I'm glad I couldn't share that with you. Uh, I'm so glad that you. And, but it's it's less of a uh, stigma, I guess. Uh, but it's it is still there. Uh, even uh, like the popularity of uh, the marvelous Mrs. Maisel on uh, Amazon Prime, which is such a good yes. Oh, it's yeah. such a good show, and it's so well written. Uh, Hear that, producers? Send a guest. <laughs> Come on in. <laughs> It'd be great. No, um, apart from that, I'm curious, because Comedy Sports has performers all around the country, sure. is there a such thing as regional comedy, since we're talking about place? Ooh. Is there a difference between... You know, can you define a difference between an Indianapolis group of performers and somebody from Denver or somebody from Seattle? Ooh, what a good question. Is there a good answer? Probably. Okay, let's I don't try know. to find it. Ooh, <laughs> I think that there, well, there's, uh, there are some things that, um, 
getting to, I've gotten to visit a few of the different cities. Uh, there's uh, one in St. Louis. Well, technically, it's a little bit north of St. Louis. They're right above a candy store. It's the Whoa. most charming thing. <laughs> yes. Uh, it's, it's called the Sugar Cube. It's super cute. Um, and uh, their players uh, are, while we do the same games in the same format, uh, it's still uh, comedy sports. Uh, it's a competitive thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, theater show where you have uh, two teams of improvisers, a red team and a blue team. There's a referee. It's for all ages, uh, but the two teams compete right. against one are another. Are there some teams that are more aggressive than others? Oh, yes. Okay. Oh, yes, there are. Uh, and Indianapolis, actually, because uh, once a year, we all uh, gather and send teams from different cities and actually get to uh, perform against one another. So like Indianapolis right. versus uh, right. San Jose or what have you. Uh, we have have, um, which actually this year uh, in June, it's going to be in Philadelphia. Oh, very good. Uh, Comedy Sports World Championship. And getting to see how teams uh, play against one another in like Chicago. It's a, it's a big improv town. Oh, so, okay. so they're, they're uh, very, and like it's, it's super well-defined. So, but Indianapolis, people are always so like blown away by the talent that we have here where you have a very uh we have a very deep bench uh right, to play gotcha. from gotcha. Uh, and not relying on a few potentially you know Saturday Night live level people correct yes. stronger across the board that is a good thing oh, yeah. in uh speaking of we hope funny in honor of <laughs> in honor of richard mccoy's visit to the show today we asked our facebook public uh to ruin a landmark or work of art by adding, deleting, or changing a word in its name. Oh, I love a pun. And here are some of the results, including some by people who are in the audience tonight. Uh, David Yosha chimed in with Codependence Hall, which I thought was, as well as the Arc de Triomphe, the insult dog. Oh, a few people got there. From Mary Goldstein. Marv, that would Marv. be Marv. Yeah. Hey, my contacts aren't as good as they should be. <laughs> no, Healthcare not. is expensive, <laughs> especially when you work in comedy. There you go. Uh, but it's uh, the uh, Statue of Libertarians. There you go. Uh, let's see. John Schwab said the Sydney Opera House dressing. That's always good. Um, uh, in Indianapolis, or yep. just a little bit north, we have uh, a uh, historic. Uh, uh, Reenactment interactive museum. Yes, uh, called Connor Prairie. Right. Uh, for our people who are listening from maybe South Africa or various other places. Um, uh, so uh, it was Scott Semester, who may be in the audience he this might evening, be. Uh, is uh, Donner Prairie. Oh, little, you don't want to eat in the restaurant at Donner Prairie. No. No, you don't. Uh, no. Also, for those locals, uh, Megan McKinney Cooper uh, suggested the USS Indiana Beach Memorial. Um, <laughs> And these, we have Ann Dancing downtown, a wonderful sculpt, light sculpture. Brian Hart suggested Ann Coulter Dancing. Oh, nobody wants to see that. Ooh, um, ooh uh, Kevin Cole. Ooh, I love this one. Uh, so it's, right, recent land, recently became a national, uh, national park. The Indiana Dunes. Indiana ooh. Dunes. Yay for Indiana Dunes. Hooray, we finally although, have one. Although, although uh, Kevin uh, suggested perhaps the Indiana Dudes National <laughs> Park. It's a lot of comedians. They're all wearing flannel. <laughs> there you go. And John mm-hmm. Kern suggested our uh, Monument Circle become the Monument Urkel in honor of your favorite sitcom character. Uh, what else did we have? Patrick uh, Wigand said the 16th Chapel. Oh, Patrick Wigand. I Wigand, do adore yeah, him. 16th Chapel, but also Della Pacheco went the same way. She went with the Cistern Chapel. Uh, yeah, what else do we like? Oh, you know what? This is cool. Um, not the greatest one. The Statue of Misery. 
which would be depressing, but it comes from David Gerald, who wrote the Trouble with Tribbles episode of Star Trek. So there we go. Shout out to David there. It's a beautiful thing. You have such fun friends. We range in interesting ways. Uh, I'm going to see you pronounce that. Oh, no. Uh, Stan uh, Chibreskba. Stan, um, Stan Jay. We like him. Uh, the La Brea Carpets, mm. which is kind of fun. All right, we're going to move on from bad puns. Ooh, what about the La Brea Pits of Despair? That would be fun. Um, now, if we haven't scared him away, I would like to welcome uh, Richard McCoy to the... Uh, to the table. <coughs> Excuse me. Richard is the founding director of Landmark, Landmark Columbus, an organization that cares for and celebrates the cultural heritage of Columbus, Indiana, including creating Exhibit Columbus, which alternates between symposia and exhibition years. And we're talking major exhibitions. We're going to talk more about that. A former Fulbright scholar to Spain, McCoy holds a master's degree in art history from New York University, a bachelor's from Indiana University. Please welcome Richard McCoy. Now, I'm sure there are many people here who have been to Columbus, Indiana and know about it, but I'm sure there are many who have not, um, or perhaps don't even know about it, some of our listeners. Give them and us the short version of how Columbus earned its international reputation as an architectural wonderland. Sure, so I think that story starts in May of 1941 when Time Magazine announced uh, the construction of First Christian Church and it said, um, the world's most expensive church built by Europe's most famous architect is going up in Columbus, Indiana, population 11,000. <laughs> <laughs> and a country collectively said, why? <laughs> Right, and so from there, you know, you see these extraordinary investments in art, architecture, and community. Wait, that, that, wait, slow down. Okay. That doesn't just happen. You see this. No, no, something happened. What happened? I mean, what? Well, I think around this time you have a number of folks in Columbus that have been there for a long time, and the, the Irwin Miller Sweeney family are among uh, sort of the, the top of that, okay. that group, and they had started a, an engine company called Cummins Diesel Engines, and they had owned a number of other uh, companies before that, mm -hmm. and so they had had this capacity in the depression to invest huge amounts of money uh, in their community and in their houses of worship and in their businesses and so from there it really does start this community-wide interest in art and architecture when something we see hear the def, the word community-wide often usually what does that mean I mean does that mean 15 dedicated people does that mean a hundred people does that mean you know what makes something community-wide there are always going to be people who don't care, or aren't interested, or aren't engaged. Or don't like it. Or don't like it. Well, yeah. That, we'll get into that. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, so I think what, why I would say it's community-wide is because uh, what happened in, in Columbus after World War II affected really all sectors of the community. Uh, you know, from the building of First Christian Church, uh, the Miller family then used their corporation, Cummins, uh, as a way to leverage uh, art and architecture in Columbus. And so they created a foundation within the corporation in advance, way before many corporations were making community or mm -hmm. corporate foundations, and they actually incentivized uh, design in the public realm. Okay. And so this was civic structures, affordable housing, really education, uh, healthcare, and parks. Uh, but they also used it in their own businesses. But then this kinds of this this kind of spreads in town where other people use it in churches, their businesses. And so I think what people see in that community is that investing in excellence 
pays off in the long run. Well, of course. Well, how is that? Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll play dumb, which I'm very good at. How does, uh, how does it pay off? I mean, how do you convince somebody who is running a business, they're considering, you know, building, you know, they have enough capital to build something new or they have the investment to expand their business. How do you say, you know what, bring in a world-class architect who's going to create something that's very different from anything else we see around us instead of doing what's been proven to be, you know, how these kind of businesses are housed. How do you convince somebody to do something different? Well, if I could answer your question with a slight uh, turn. Sure, um, we do that do. all the time. Yeah, <laughs> no. So I, you know, a big fan of the show, and I love that every one of your shows, you start by talking about your hometown. Mm -hmm. You talk about New Jersey, and I didn't, you know, and so I get to, you know, we get to know sort of you and some of the values that you had growing up. Mm -hmm. But if you think about really, and I grew up in, in Indiana, I think about what are some of the most sort of Hoosier of values Mm -hmm. And I think some of those are around doing things right the first time. Okay. And, and these are very sort of working class, uh, almost probably farming values. You know, this mm -hmm. idea of, of it pays in the long run to do it right the first time. Right. And so I think that, you know, as investing in excellence in that way, it's, it's really just as much doing it right the first time. Mm -hmm. And so all of this starts in education in Columbus in the 1950s when the school board was paying uh, to put up these um, sort of poor quality cheap houses, or I'm sorry, cheap schools. Mm -hmm. And so they quickly um, come and subsidize that and put up excellent schools, all of which are still in, in uh, use today. What are, what are some concrete differences between what would have been a poor school and what would be an excellent school that the lay yeah. person would see or I understand? mean, I think it's, it's, uh, it's materials. And mm -hmm. so, you know, the schools that were going up were literally sort of Quonset huts, very mm -hmm. thin walls, very inefficient to heat. For and those who maybe don't know what Quonset means. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I obviously do, but. <laughs> um, you know, I think it's a, a Quonset hut is a particular kind of building. It just would be sort of a, a thin wall sort of thing that really proliferated, that came about. No, no, I, I know okay. proliferated. Okay. I don't know that much. <laughs> well, I was trying to dumb it down, Frankie. Yeah, I was like, That's okay. I, gotta I don't know keep where our. Polysyllabic words to a minimum. I don't know. <laughs> Polysyllabic, that's uh, hey, when you love more, you love more than Many. one person at yeah. a time, right? Yeah, that's, 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 that's all good. We're cool with that. I was with Frankie over there before, and I said, can, let's, can we make, how do I make what I do funny? And so I'm trying. <laughs> no, no, You're doing great. Right. Okay. It's all good. Okay. It's all good. How much pushback was there about some of these buildings that are now iconic now? Well, I, I, you know, I've only been working in Columbus, you know, really for the past, on and off for the past 10 years, so I don't really know the answer to much of that. But I think that in any place, uh, and traditionally there's some traditional Indiana values, there's cranks everywhere, mm -hmm. right? And so there's people that are going to be cranky with change, they're going to think it's expensive. And so um, in Columbus, this is most noted in the 1970s, when a new school board came in and said, we're going to stop letting Cummins subsidize these buildings, uh, we're tired of these modern flat roof things they don't work they're expensive to maintain and they threw out the school board in the 1970s and they went back to their way of building sort of traditional schools so they built one in taylorsville indiana within the county uh the project was over budget uh it was expensive and the school didn't work very well they threw out that school board and they brought a new school board back in and they went back to the cummins foundation went way does there was there an eye at any point in this toward, hey, this might attract some tourists? I mean, how much of it was, you know, the world's largest ball of twine kind of thing where we're going to do this and it might bring some dollars in uh, from visitors? 
Um, I would say up until probably the 80s or 90s, zero percent. Okay. You know, it was really about building a great community, mm -hmm. and it was self-enlightened business leaders that knew if they had great schools, great parks, great facilities, they could attract talented people to move to their cities. And you mm -hmm. think about this global competition we're in today in every city to attract people to live here, it's the same game, mm -hmm. right? And so they did all of these things to make it a great place to live. Uh, it just sort of became an outcome that it became an interesting thing to go look mm -hmm. at. What brought you to Columbus? Uh, chaos. <laughs> oh, well, yeah, I'm interested, yeah. yes. Well, those of you who watched these TV series Get Smart, you know the chaos was the evil... No, no, forget that. Uh, chaos, yeah, chaos is this monumental sculpture in the middle of what <laughs> used to be a shopping mall in downtown right. Columbus. It's mm -hmm. built by, yeah. uh, and you can pronounce this two different ways, uh, this Swiss architect named Jean Tongli, or in Indiana we would say Gene Tingley. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, uh, I, I think, like them both. I think Gene Tingley is performing at Brad's Gold Club this weekend, too, so make sure you catch her act. So I, 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 um, the mall had closed in 2008, and there were some questions about what would happen uh, to this sculpture. And I used to, in my former life, I used to be uh, a conservator restorer of large outdoor sculptures and exhibitions. And so I was brought in to come help uh, figure out what to do with then a 40-year-old piece of, of art that really is Gene Tingley's best work. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. And what did you do with it? Well, we um, it, this the the mall. It's a, an amazing story. Is there was this mall in in the middle of downtown uh, that was being uh, torn down, kind of renovated, mostly mm -hmm. torn down and rebuilt. And there was a question about what to do with this sculpture in the middle of it. If mm -hmm. you've seen it, mm -hmm. it's this thirty foot tall, amazing thing that has you know twelve motors and it kind of spins and whirs and clanks. Mm -hmm. Um, it's a centerpiece, and so uh, the community decided they really wanted to save that, and so they built a box around it, and then they built a whole new uh, building. And so I was brought in to come uh, help uh, clean it up and preserve it in a way that it would look good, but still kind of show its age. And so as one who is uh, no longer in his 30s, I know that it's important to be uh, authentically of your age. Yeah. Right. Now... Talk about how Exhibit Columbus came out of all of this. Yeah, so um, I think, you know, the, the challenge with Columbus is by the mid to late 2000s, uh, Columbus was in, was, had, was in a downturn. Come, the diesel engine company was going through a transition, um, and Columbus is an interesting place in that it's, it's um, always been a fairly affluent uh, mm -hmm. town for some. Uh, at one point, I think it had four Fortune 500 companies. Oh. And it's the headquarters of Cummins today, which is a Fortune 200 company. There was a lot of great business in town. People mm -hmm. did pretty well. But by the 2000s, yeah. um, the Miller family had passed away. Uh, unfortunately, their banking enterprise was lost. One of the other large corporations was gone. Mm -hmm. And so there was a lot of change. Uh, there was a lot of questions of what to do with these buildings that are now mm -hmm. 50 years old. And, um, you know, so we... Uh, some folks in the community got together and said we should care about this and we should uh, help care for the past and then we should find ways to continue looking forward. Let's keep the spirit alive. And so in, in essence, Exhibit Columbus is a kind of preservation project. It's trying to keep the traditions and values that built Columbus in the 1940s and 50s alive today in a different way. But that architectural, I mean that fund for new 
buildings, does that still exist? Yeah, so the Cummins Foundation uh, absolutely still funds uh, projects in Bartholomew County only. Okay. And so it's now a global company. In fact, I think 60% of its employees work outside of the country, okay. but still ha has a very special relationship in Columbus. Right. Now, Exhibit Columbus is a little different than those permanent structures. This was an idea of alternating a symposium every other year, but then also very significant, substantial public art. Yeah, so to, to solve this problem of how do we keep this going, what we did is uh, we gathered really some of the smartest people in the state and in the region and had them think about this problem and come up with this idea, Exhibit Columbus, that would one year um, have a symposium where we could think about new ideas and we could think about the past and really you know, kind of have a think year. And then the next year, build an exhibition that showed off new designs. And so How many people here would like to have a think year? Just right. to be able to take oh, time and just great. think. Yeah. yeah. Let's work toward that, shall we? Anyway, sorry. It's a busy year nonetheless. Yeah, yeah. I would imagine. Yeah. yeah. So we put on this, you know, you know and, and every bit of our intention was to make a world-class uh, project. And we, Columbus is interesting because today it's 45,000 people, but um, it competes globally. Mm. And we wanted Exhibit Columbus to be as good as any other project in the United States or the world. And so we're paying attention to things like Art Prize in Grand Rapids, the Chicago mm. Architectural Biennial Project, or Prospect New Orleans. Um, these other things that are, mm. many cities today are putting together projects like this to look at um, how do we invest in art and culture as a, as a way to make the place a more interesting mm -hmm. uh, way to, uh, uh, place to move to. And so, I mean, I think you would see, uh, was it earlier this year, Lillian Dowman announced about $45 million in grants right. to Marion County mm -hmm. to, yeah. to this very reason, right? Yeah. Now, are there, are there significantly fewer hurdles to go through when you're talking about a uh, temporary exhibition like this than there is with something that's going to be permanent. I would imagine there's a, a little bit of, don't worry if you don't like it, it's going to be gone in six months. Yeah, so just to say what we do with Exhibit Columbus, the exhibition, is that the centerpiece of it is what we call the J. Irwin and Xenia S. Miller Prize. And this is meant to recognize uh, these two community leaders in this family that have really invested um, their whole life and their family's lives in this town and, and to honor and celebrate them. And so in that, we select five of really North America's leading designers that work in a way that relates to the philosophy of Columbus. And then we ask them to make something in relation to a world famous building. Mm -hmm. You know, no worries, you can do it. Yeah, sure. <laughs> and and We're there. So, and so I mean and so then we give them a budget mm -hmm. and they build a temporary installation that as you say is up for 3 months. Mm -hmm. And so uh, it is fun to try to work with property owners to say, "Hey, can we stick something on your front yard? Right. Can we do this?" Um, it was it was a challenge the first year to do it because you know, I don't no one knew exactly what we were going to do. Right. And everybody says, mm, "Maybe next year." And you're like, "No, that's our thing here. We can't we have to, <laughs> we have to do it." Now. No, I think I think I promised people that we wouldn't make their place worse. Mm -hmm. like, like it's not going to get any worse. A lot of marriages promise. are based on that. Yeah. That's a nice proposal. Yeah. Hi, would you join me for the rest of my life? I won't make your life worse. That's a beautiful thing. Um, but these, so these works are meant to be seen in the context of one of the existing architectural landmarks. Yeah. So we believe that new design. Um, done well uh, can be a kind of special lens that allows you to see to the past, allows you to think about the past and see that. And I think that it also should respect um, all of the heritage that's come before us, 
um, why we're here on this earth and, mm -hmm. you know, and then look to the future. And so this is what we try to do with Exhibit Columbus is to get designers that care about that and value the past at the same time are innovative thinkers in their own time. Now, when you, when you visit a town you haven't been to and you see a piece of public art, what makes you cringe? Uh, um, you don't have to be specific, or, no, but you could. We'd um, love that. But Yeah, um, well, <laughs> I, um, I, I, think that, I think too often public art gets asked to do more than it's capable of doing. And I think that too often people uh, are willing to put a very small budget to an artwork that devalues art and the artist. Mm -hmm. And so like I, you'll get exposure. Right. <laughs> right. And so I think, you know, to use Indianapolis as an example, there's a lot of projects that have gone up in the past uh, 10 years that have probably been in a budget of five to twenty thousand mm -hmm. dollars. And, you know, you just you're not going to get a lot. And so I think what. Um, I look to when you see an interesting work of art is that you've had a thoughtful client that's really thought about what this artwork can do and then they've matched those thoughts with an artist that can do it and they've given them a sufficient budget. How do you balance the there's always a push or seems to be toward community input and community and sort of decision by committee. How do you fight the idea of art as elitist while also saying you know what we can't put this to a public vote because we're going to end up with McDonald's art. I, I think you have to have uh, good leaders. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I think that too often uh, committees and community involvement, uh, again, you're asking an artist to do too much. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that a good leader and a good committee will find a space that allows an artist uh, to do what they do well and protect that space. I mean, mm -hmm. it's the same as in comedy, you know, mm -hmm. is that you want to really give the entertainment, the talent, a great space to succeed. Mm -hmm. Now, when Exhibit Columbus rolled around the exhibit piece of it, how did you know, did you know at the time that the movie Columbus was going to be Ooh, yeah. hitting and released? We did know that was coming. And so, because we'd seen them around town filming, it was in the newspaper. And so, you know, we had sort of paid, but we didn't know what it would do. And it was just, oh, this kind of art house film. Mm -hmm. But what was amazing is they filmed it, I think in the late summer or fall of 16. And they had it turned around and produced by, I think, like February. It was a real oh, yeah. it was, it was crazy. Yeah. So we didn't anticipate it would happen that quickly. Mm -hmm. We thought it could have been a thing that doesn't come out until now. Right. You know, and so, uh, it, and then we didn't anticipate, um, you know, the level of interest that it got, but right. it was awesome. Was there, I mean, there sort of is a history when, it's, when a movie has a title of a city in its town, I mean, a name of a town in its title. Um, it's often different than what perhaps city boosters might want. I mean, I know going back, the folks in Nashville, Tennessee, weren't too crazy about Robert Altman's Nashville, which is one of my favorite films of all time. Uh, I'm sure there are people in Philadelphia who weren't crazy about being presented uh, with the bigotry shown in the movie Philadelphia. What was the expectation when people said, hey, there's a movie shooting in Columbus, and then they saw it, and it was, it was an art house film? Um. I think that um, there was some concern about it because I don't know how if you all remember. I think it's there's one line in the film where it says uh, modernism and meth or something because mm -hmm. um, the, the the protagonist uh, uh, one of the characters is a recovering meth addict mm -hmm. and so she talks about that. So I think there was a lot of concern about how the town would be portrayed, but then once everyone saw how beautiful the town looked. 
that went away real quickly. Mm-hmm. And it was, wow, the town looks better in the movie sometimes than it does in real person. <laughs> so uh, everybody just grabbed onto it, right? Like, great, we love it. Um, beyond Columbus, uh, I'm very interested in your involvement with the Souls Grown Deep Foundation, uh, which is an organization run by Maxwell Anderson, who used to be the uh, uh, run the Indianapolis uh, Museum of Art. Uh, tell now us about New Fields. Now New Fields. Uh, Souls Grown Deep. What does yeah. that mean? And tell us about what that means for regional art. Yeah. Um, so I, you know, I don't really talk about this this part of my work very often. So I'm glad to have your question. Okay. Um, I got involved with Souls Grown Deep, uh, which is based in Atlanta, Georgia, when I was working at the Indianapolis Museum of Art, and we put together so the Thornton uh, Dial Show, the Thornton Dial yeah. Show, and the quilts of G's Bend, and so. Um, I got to know Thornton Dial pretty well, who was a, an 80-year-old artist working in uh, Bessemer, Alabama, and had made some of the most amazing work I've ever seen in my life. Pause. Uh, I don't know if any of you saw that show at the Indianapolis Museum of Art. The mo- probably the best thing I've seen at that museum since. Let's bang your hands together if you like that show because that was amazing and and unique. Because even though Thornton Dial has really nothing to do with Indianapolis. It wasn't a show that was being done anywhere. Right. It yeah. was a time when I was at the museum that I felt like our museum was as good as anybody's on the planet. Mm-hmm. And I was really proud to put that, help put that show together. We actually traveled it around the South. Mm-hmm. And so I got very involved with the foundation and I've sort of stayed on as a consultant to okay. them. And so what the foundation is doing now is they're actually taking all of the works, and there's many more than, than uh, Thornton Dial. There's about 80, art, uh, 80 artists that were collected uh, 80 uh, African-American artists from the working in the rural South in the 80s and 90s. And uh, this guy, Bill Arnett, collected it and eventually mm-hmm. gave it to his foundation. And so Max Anderson is now using this foundation as a way uh, to leverage his connections in the institutions uh, around the country and, and now in Europe to get these works in important museums, mm-hmm. to preserve them for the long term. And so I was really proud to be involved in this. And so I serve uh, as a conservation associate to that for the past five years. And um, in short, I take phone calls from nervous uh, curators at museums. Uh-huh. Like, what am I getting? What do I do with this? <laughs> it's going to be fine. Uh-huh. You know, and uh, so I have a lot of fun with it. What's the, what's the resistance? Is it because they haven't gone through, tr- these artists haven't gone through traditional Developmental channels and gallery channels. Yes, is that? Uh, and it's also because they're they're black artists from the rural south. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not coming to the art world from traditional ways, mm-hmm. and so that can be a real challenge to the institutions. And they're made of non-traditional materials, mm-hmm. uh, which is a bit phony because if you go look at any contemporary art show today. What is a traditional art material? There is no, (laughs) you know, and so I think that people are just, uh, you know, it's it's a big uh, challenge for institutions to take major works that are made from complex materials. Mm -hmm. And so I usually um, I'm walking uh, through a curator or director of the process to care for a complicated thing. Mm -hmm. Back to to exhibit Columbus for a second, because that most of that work is shown outdoors. It's obviously free for anyone walking around. How do you make that happen financially? I mean, how? Can- <laughs> mm-hmm. That's a great. I thought I was. This is a fundraising. <laughs> bit here. No. You'll uh, see an envelope on your table. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, that's a great question. Um, so it is it is free, and we try to keep everything we do to be um, as affordable or free as we can because we want to make it accessible. It's the traditions of town, mm -hmm. and we also want to make it accessible um, intellectually in a way so that anybody can be involved with it, but also as intellectually rigorous that, again, when the New York Times comes and reviews it, it's, they take it seriously. Mm -hmm. And uh, this requires a significant amount of money. And we've been really fortunate to have the support of a number of really uh, generous individuals, foundations, corporations uh, in Columbus and in Indianapolis. And um, I'm happy to name names. Uh, you know, we've, we're really grateful for the support in Indianapolis of the Ephraimson Family Fund. Uh, in Columbus, we get a lot of support from Cummins, uh, the Heritage Fund, which is the community foundation there, uh, Johnson Ventures, um, the Haddad family. So there's a lot of families. Um, and they give in such an extraordinary way that it makes me feel um, uh, like I'm spoiled uh, because folks will um, just in a sense give a, a gift to the project and put their money in the middle of the table. And they don't really expect, um, they're not selling a product, mm -hmm. it's not marketing dollars, uh, they're not trying to get their name on anything. They just want to do something that's great for the community mm -hmm. and great for the world. Mm -hmm. And so to have the privilege of experiencing that has probably been uh, one of the most extraordinary things about working in Columbus. And that really is part of the traditions of that town. Where is it in process now for the next? We are building 18 installations right now with so um, some world-class designers. We're really excited about it. Uh, it opens August 24th. So right now we're, we're looking at a lot of drawings and renderings and phone calls, and we're trying to match makers to, to designers. And it's, this, is the, this is the most fun uh, part of the project. And so I work with an amazing team down there that does this day in and day out. Now I know that whatever it was 18 months ago, whenever when the exhibit was up, there was talk about keeping some of it permanent and there are things that people like and want to stick around. What's some happened that with people don't want to stick around. Stick around. Yeah. It's going to happen. But yeah. what, what did, um, yeah. what was the result of those conversations? Uh, there are four things that have stuck around and we love all of them. Yeah. One is uh, we had this designer, Cody Hoyt, who pulled up 25 bricks, 2,500 bricks from mm -hmm. a, a street. 25, 2,500. 2,500. What's a few hundred between And he first. made um, 2,500 new bricks and installed them in this really beautiful pattern on a street corner. And, and they had multiple people who were from Columbus helping out laying those out, right? Oh, yeah. 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 yeah my yeah. Uh, my boyfriend's sister told me about, like, she lives down in Columbus and was actually, like, telling us, like, taking pictures, like, while not not to be like like telling about secrets or anything right, but, but incorporating like the community no. but like showing like that it's like it's it, it is bringing community together in that way too we we purposely build it as open as we can so, so great. you know come down and, and instagram us doing it yeah. and, you know tell the world so that's it. and so that one's there um there's this really cool place called window to columbus that's still there and then two of the Miller Prize installations are still there. One is behind, uh, uh, they're both attached to National Historic Landmarks. One is the former Irwin Union Bank by mm -hmm. Aero Saarinen. And it has this amazing piece called The Exchange by Euler Wu Collaborative, a group based in Los Angeles. And then at First Christian Church, the church I mentioned when we started, uh, designed by Aero's father, Eliel, um, there's this amazing piece called Wikiami. Mm -hmm. And that is, Wikiami is the Miamia word, which is the Miami Indians of the, from this area. It's the, it's the Miami word uh, for wigwam. Mm -hmm. And so this ah. is a piece that talks mm -hmm. about indigenous people to this land of Indiana. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's a really interesting sort of contemporary look at traditional uh, indigenous uh, 
architectural uh, and construction methods. And going into this, the artists knew that there was a chance that their pieces would stay up. You know, not? artists love their work, and so they're, they're, he's uh, yeah. I, so the designer for this is Chris Cornelius, and I uh, talk with him sometimes, and he's always saying, "Oh, you know, I think it's, I think he has a hashtag now for it. You know, you know, keep Wikiami." But the the, the argument that we've uh, made is that you know, let us again, let us use your lawn for three months, and mm -hmm. we won't mess it up. Right. Um, so at some point, we are going to give the lawn back to First Christian Church. Gotcha. Um, thank you. Uh, Richard's going to be around during the second half. And again, uh, write down questions that you may have, because we're going to talk a lot more um, about these subjects. But I want to bring up our uh, musical guest. While you, you may have heard Sarah Grain in the Billion Stars, Billions of Stars, uh, what you may not know is her deep connection to place, not just in her music. Uh, in college at Indiana University, she created a major in sustainable urban studies. We're going to talk about uh, permaculture a little later. Um, she worked for years with Keep Indianapolis Beautiful, uh, where among many other projects, she pushed for urban tree planting, a believer in nature-based education. Uh, she's a beekeeper, a martial arts practitioner, a camp youth instructor, and as you'll hear now, one hell of a musician. Uh, she's joined by Doug Souter. Uh, we're going to talk with her after the break. We're going to take your questions for everyone. But for now, please welcome Sarah Green. Thank you. Uh, Doug, my, uh, my comrade over here. Doug, do you need to tune, Doug? Or are you good? Sound good? Sounds good. Okay, I was gonna. I was getting ready for some banter. My first banter was, "How did you know all that about me?" Oh, that you know, amazing. I'm a journalist. What can I journalist, tell you? Journalist research. It was all good stuff that he said. So I'm glad he doesn't know the rest of my past. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we just haven't gotten to it yet. <laughs> okay, we're gonna do a little sense of place song here. Um, I had a different plan of what I was gonna sing first, but then. Uh, Lou kind of gave me the rundown for what all the questions were going to be about, so we're going to uh, switch up the order. And this song is called Transition, and it's from my upcoming album. Uh, the upcoming album is called Winded, Spirited, Stranded. And for those in the room, you'll see a flyer out there. And I'm actually offering a deal tonight that for those that back my Kickstarter campaign to, let, uh, to release Winded, Spirited, Stranded, um, you get to take home a copy of our band's album, Something Wild, tonight. So just think about that. And uh, this is Transition. See the colors fill the light. 
position, that's all I am to you and yours. A footprint on your path from here to there. And I am here and there, I'm everywhere that I've found. Winded and spirited and stranded. And I, I feel the Sarah Grain and Doug Souter. We'll be back with more music, more talk, more everything after a brief intermission. <laughs> Welcome back. I'm glad you are all still in the house. I want to thank our sponsor, first of all, before we get into more chat and music, uh, the Aristocrat and its lovely Oxford Room. Perfect for many types of gatherings with the same excellent service as the rest of the restaurant. Formerly, this were, these were three studio apartments up here. Now they are a wonderful space with rich wood paneling, leaded and stained glass windows and fixtures, as well as artwork and collectibles. Um, uh, seating about 60 people. It's equipped with audiovisual equipment, a full bar, private bathroom, separate entrance, and an elevator with access from the parking lot. The Oxford Room of the Aristocrat. Think about it when you're thinking about having an event. Also... Come by for lunch and dinner Ooh. at the fabulous Aristocrat. Get some baked brie down at the Aristocrat. It's delightful. Yes, that's a good thing. And uh, for those liking the indigenous foods, the tenderloin goes on for days. Ooh, you have leftovers for tomorrow and the next day. And the ne exactly. Um, Sarah Green is here at the desk. Hello, thank um, you for having me. Um, 
want to talk about that. First of all, give us a little bit of your your roots here. Where, how deep do your roots go here? How did you Well, end up? my roots go from birth. I was born at St. Vincent's Hospital on the north side. And I grew up in on the Spring Mill Road area. My husband calls me a Spring Mill Light, <laughs> which is kind of a different, different breed of folk. Mm-hmm. Um, and I went off to college in Bloomington and Indiana University. I really, when I applied for colleges, I applied all on the West Coast. I was applying to Lewis and Clark, to Santa Cruz, to Santa Barbara. I got into all of those, but at the end of the day, I didn't want to owe my parents money in the end. I wanted to have my own freedom, so I decided to go to the state school. And what also brought me there is I had started playing Capoeira Angola um, in Indianapolis my senior year of high school. And my uh, mastery, uh, my teacher... Walk us through that. So Capoeira Angola is a Afro-Brazilian martial art. And uh, my teacher, Mestre Yuri Santos, he was living in Bloomington, and he's from Salvador in uh, Brazil. And that's kind of really the reason I stayed, because I didn't quite know what I wanted to do with my life. I didn't want to owe $100,000 at the end of the day. And um, my Capoeira teacher was based out of Bloomington. Mm. So I went to Bloomington, and so, you know, it's interesting that kind of like a worldly art, like (laughs) Capoeira Angola, is what made me stay local yeah i'm interested in how how place influences how someone experiences the arts theater visual art dance music readings all of it um tell me a little bit about how you you feel like a show that you present changes based on venue whether outdoor indoor a different kind of space do the space influence absolutely i mean definitely audience um attention and participation absolutely um, influences me. I mean, definitely a room full of 40 quiet people like I have right now would make (laughs) me much more nervous than a space full of 200 loud people that are really kind of have the tunnel vision of their own lives. So just expanding my heart and myself to others that are expanding their hearts and themselves to me um, creates kind of a different kind of atmosphere. Um, I get more into storytelling mode when I'm in a quiet space. I tell more about myself, my life, the background of the songs, um, where when I'm just kind of in a bar full of folks, that's an awesome experience as well. I love just like unplugging. I love just getting into the music. I love just listening to what the bass is doing or what the drum set is doing and kind of disconnecting from the audience and just getting into my art Um, because it does, it is a lot of emotional exchange to be uh, interacting with an audience like that. So they're, they're just different. And I think the audience really gets just as much from seeing me disconnected from them and connected with my band mm-hmm. than they do from, you know, engaging in my heart space. Okay. Well, also in terms of unusual spaces, you, is this true? You had an album release party in the catacombs underneath Indianapolis City Market. That's amazing. Now, how did that happen and why? Um, it was a once in a lifetime experience <laughs> meeting. I will never do it again because it was very, very hard, very mm. difficult. It's, um, it is a unpredictable space. Obviously there's like four power outlets in the whole thing and it's all, it's <laughs> controlled by ghosts. Right. Let's be honest. And so, Indiana like, Jones no. is searching for idols down there. Isn't um, it? and I have to be honest, it came about because my husband, Ted Grain, he's in the community development world in Indianapolis. He's the executive director of local initiative support corporation and he manages the platform which is the um, space in the west wing of the city market and when I was talking about spaces he's always telling me these (laughs) unpredictable like un unconventional things I should do. Like he's like, don't do the hi-fi. Don't do 
you know, these spaces that everybody's expecting. Do something different. He's like, what about the city market? He was like, we could talk to Stevie. I know Stevie. You could do it down the city market. I'm like, what are you talking about? That's insane. I love it. Let's do it. <laughs> so, you know, we went into kind of really not knowing what we were getting into. We had to haul, you know, hundreds of pounds of equipment down dusty stairwells. Um, by the end of that night, I got there at nine in the morning to start setting up that space. I did not leave until two. The next day, I was like sneezing black goo out of my face the whole day. You have a little bit of black lung. It's okay. literally a dirt floor. And sneezing black goo is another Chicago-based improv group. It right? is. It, so is. It's all it was up. magical, though. I mean, we hung up, um, you know, twinkle lights in the very center. And if you've never been in the city market uh, or in the catacombs, it's just like this deep, uh, just imagine like a space where it's like, brick arch after brick arch after brick arch and you can't see how far back it goes so that day especially we made sure to like only light the area in the very center where people were going to gather and then you could kind of see the brick arches going off in the distance but you didn't quite know how far they were going to go and it was a it was a night to remember a question i've wanted to ask musicians and i never got around to it and i want to ask you do it now do it now it's going to happen now I'm fascinated by album cover art. Now, I know it's not as important maybe as it used to be back in the days of everyone putting out vinyl mm -hmm. albums, but I'm wondering how you come up, you know, those images kind of help define how somebody's gonna listen to the music or they sort of create a framework around it. How do you decide what's going to be on the cover of a disc that you put out? Um. Well, I mean, the last album we put out was actually put out on vinyl, and it was only intended to put out on vinyl, so I thought very much about the album artwork. And um, at the time, when we started The Billions of Stars, like literally within the same month that we had our first gig at the Chatterbox, I was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. And that was, I'm going to get teary-eyed because mm. it's still emotional for me, but it was like a huge blow to me. Um, it was scary, uh, but... There was also this really positive, really inspiring thing going on in my life at the same time. And um, kind of going into when we were forming our album, I kind of had a, my just a routine MRI. At that time, I was having MRIs um, every year. And MRIs are not expensive cheap as you may know so it was hard financially on my family hard emotionally like waiting to get the results and um there was this this moment i was with my neurologist and we were looking through these um, visuals of like my brain scan mm -hmm. and there was this moment where you could see you know the slice down of my head and my brain and i was just like stop and the neurologist, he's like, you know, this really dry, just scientist type. He's like, what? Stop, what? I'm like, I got to take a picture of this. So I took a picture of this because the night and then that night I took it to my band rehearsal. And I was like, we knew that the album was going to be called Something Wild. We knew at that time we were going to name it after um, this, this track, Something Wild. And we were talking about what the album art could be. And then it just like hit me. I'm like, oh, because I was showing them this brain scan. I'm like, isn't this amazing? I'm like, who has this? Who has an image of their own brain? And I was just marveling at that. And then it just hit me. I'm like, oh, my gosh. Like, we could make a something wild version of my brain. Yeah. So if you see, you'll see uh, the folks here in the room can see the album artwork. Um, someone just purchased it tonight. Yeah, you can see the album artwork. It's um, I asked uh, the art, artist Stephanie Renner, who works under the name Mythmaker, 
Um, I was like, can you make a something wild version of this? And if you look at my brain scan and put it next to her artwork, you will see, like you'll see in the artwork, there's a snake for like my esophagus. And it, if you saw my brain scan, it is a snake. And it is a bird. And it is a mushroom in there. Like she used those exact shapes and she just kind of filled them in with color. And it was this beautiful moment. Um, so that was kind of obvious to me. Uh, my new artwork uh, for my upcoming album, Winded Spirited Stranded, this album has a lot of kind of like ancestral ties. Obviously, all of my music has a strong nature connection. Um, and there was this one night that I was driving down to the studio, and uh, I recorded Winded Spirited Stranded at Airtime Studios in Bloomington. And I would have to put my twins down to bed around 7 p.m., and I would drive down there, and we would record all night and I would drive back at 6 a.m. to be there for their 7 a.m. wake-up time. Mm. <laughs> so I lost, you know, 36 hours of sleep at a time to do this. And one night when we were driving down there, I pulled in. It was dark. I pulled into my parking spot, and I go, like, goo, 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 goo. And I'm like, whoa, what's that? So I, like, back up, which I shouldn't have done. You should never back up on something that you <laughs> clunk, clunk, clunk over. But We've I gone over it. We're <laughs> And I backed up, and it was like a fully intact deer skull, this like Ooh. beautiful deer skull that like some dog just drew, dragged out of the woods or something. And so to me, at that time, I had already known there was like ancestral connections and nature connections, and I'd kind of already been thinking about some kind of skull imagery, and so that I knew at that moment, I was like, oh, this deer wants to be a part of this project. So if you see uh, my Winded, Spirited, Stranded upcoming album art, um, the deer is a part of that. And, and I hope that as a culture, we're moving back to the point where we're gonna be framing our album art. I have my album art framed at home. Um, I definitely look for, al for albums based on, on the artwork and, mm. and that's an added bonus to me, so. Yeah. We were talking- Was your car okay? <laughs> yeah. My car was miraculously okay too, okay. but I haven't done that again. Okay. The other shoe has to drop there so that people know. can move on. Yeah, like, absolutely. Um, we talked a little bit about bias in the in the comedy world. Uh, male musicians often don't get asked about how they balance home life and family life. I don't think I've <laughs> ever heard that question asked of a male. Um, what other? I'm not even going to ask you how you balance. What I want to know is what other biases still exist for women musicians. What do you mm. What do you see out there? You know, I have to be honest, I tend not to focus on the biases. Okay. I just focus on the art, you know, so I'm just kind of barreling forward. I'm lucky that I'm not, you know, at the time that I was working at Keep Indianapolis Beautiful, I worked there for eight years as the volunteer coordinator and neighborhoods coordinator, and I really didn't have a lot of time for music then, and I didn't mm. even have kids then, but mm. just working full time and doing art is really hard, so mm -hmm. it's like really my hats go off to anyone that does that. Right now, you know, our family situation is that I work part-time and that's better for my family, it's better for me, it's better for my husband, you know, but that also allows me to do my art. So um, I see a huge benefit in being a stay-at-home mom in that sense because as a stay-at-home mom, I've been able to um, focus a lot on my art. You know, so in, in one sense, I feel like there's a, ba a bias towards being a traditional female in a traditional female role there. I mean, mm -hmm. I do work part-time as a nature mentor for White Pine Wilderness Academy, but um, you know, then I have three days a week that I can mm -hmm. focus on my art if that's what I wanna do. Is the in, the music world now putting more pressure, or is, do you feel more pressure to be the road warrior who's going to, you know, uh, play a, a, you know, 15 gigs a month and sell discs along the way and do all that, or is that, 
off I'm your sure radar. some people feel that way, mm-hmm. and that's kind of always been off my radar because it's always been outside of my abilities, outside of my capabilities. You mm-hmm. know, like my family definitely comes first mm-hmm. to me, Good. and just balance. And honestly, I'm a homebody. Like I'm not the kind of person that's like aching to just like jump in the in the van and tour. And that's why I've never taken a tour. I hope sometime to do that, but I kind of just focus on my community. Um, I give a lot of. Uh, I, I have a lot of respect for those artists like that stay here and that are trying to build the culture here. And I also see, you know, at this point, uh, a market that can support coming out and seeing me once a month or once every two months, but not every week. Mm-hmm. So I don't think it would be good for my art to be like constantly out there every week, like hustling, hustling, hustling. Um, when really I could be putting all my energy into fewer shows and Mm -hmm. getting more people to those shows and making them really special experiences like the catacombs, like what we're going to do for my Winded Spirited Stranded album release at White Pine Wilderness Academy on June 8th. By the way, put that on your calendars. I'm really, I love my gig at the Chatterbox Jazz Club on the fourth Tuesday because everybody knows that I'm going to be there. And so that's the real way that we can kind of feed into our community, get them to come out, like get them to listen to things we're experimenting with things that like are a little edgy and they're a little uncomfortable for us but then I like to um, organize and coordinate those really special experiences that happen less often Mm. you talked a little bit about outdoor stuff Indiana does not have the best reputation for its outdoor life you always hear it in the negative for people well there's no mountains no oceans what do you think outsiders and even many Hoosiers don't realize about the natural assets here. I mean, local scientists, Indiana scientists, will tell you that in our um, preserves that are best um, kept from deforestation and things like that, and that are best preserved in their natural state, we have more species diversity than a lot of those places that you're thinking about out in the mountainous regions. There are a lot of different kinds of salamanders. There's a lot of different kinds of, of woodland plants. Um, they're maybe not as flashy as the things that you're seeing, but our species div- d- diversity is actually really good in those preserved places. And, you know, when I worked at Keep Indianapolis Beautiful, we focused on bringing the wild to the neighborhoods, bringing the wild to your backyard. And I work at a place called White Pine Wilderness Academy with kids. And we're not like smack dab in the middle of 120 acres of preserved wildlife. We are in Rocky Ripple. And we walk through a neighborhood to get to this little patch of woods along the Wapahani White River. And there is a lot of honeysuckle there. But what matters most is that we're creating like nature connections with kids that are allowing them to like see themselves as future conservationists, you know? So it's like really all what I'm about is like, where are those little patches of woods? Because honestly, wildlife likes to be in the edge. They like to exist in the edge between like the forest and the field, between the city and, and the wild places. So there's actually a lot of wildlife to be appreciated in the city because it's a constant edge. Everywhere you go, it's like the edge between a road and a little like wild thicket or, you know, the river and the canal. And um, wildlife likes to be in those places. So there's really a lot to experience and love here if you just open your eyes to it. And surprise, every audience member gets a salamander today. Yes, if you you, uh, contribute to my Kickstarter campaign, you get to take home a a, a redback salamander tonight. (laughs) Well, while we were talking about big words earlier, way back when, um, (laughs) I mentioned permaculture. What does that mean? Give us your definition of that and... (laughs) 
Well, my history with permaculture is that I was a part of Indiana University's very first permaculture class um, back in, gosh, when was that? 2000-something. And to me, permaculture means um, working with nature, not against it, paying attention to human pathways, and um, like inviting nature into the space around those human pathways, but not trying to like build things and expect humans to act in a different way. Like humans are going to act the way that they're going to act. Mm-hmm. And so and so is nature. So we have to find what they're doing naturally. It's about actually doing less work. Like how can we design our spaces so that we're doing less work and nature's doing less work and we're getting more from that space. Okay. Would you like to do another song? Sure. Would you like to hear another Please, song? Please, yes. We're going to uh, go through questions once you... Uh, once the song is over. All right, so um, we did something from uh, my new album, Winded, Spirited, Stranded, and we're gonna do something brand new tonight, something we've been just kind of working with behind closed doors. So uh, are you an experimental crowd? Do you like hearing new things, things that might not be fully hammered out yet? You're gonna hear it. Yeah, it's kind of improv. It's like rehearsed improv. Okay, this song is called Look Away. Remember on the porch that night, faces lit by fire. Friends were talking side by side Except for you and I The world around began to fade Felt your eyes upon my face When I tried to meet your gaze I had to look away It's too Strong like a 
shouldn't stay So all you could do Was look away bring Richard back up and have some questions that you folks wanted to wanted answered. Welcome One more back. time, round of applause for Sarah and Doug. Um, one of our visitors here to the Aristocrat wants to know, how can I get an art installation on my lawn? You can't ruin it. Uh, did you have people turn down? Um, offers to have artwork done in Columbus? No, no, not everyone. a one. In fact, um, this year we had a couple a couple people reach out to us and re so St. Peter's Lutheran Church, for example, said we really want to have something, and so mm -hmm. yeah, no one's no one's turned us down. Well, you have someone ready and willing. Yeah, here just to have give me an address. Artwork. <laughs> 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 um, this is interesting for for actually everyone on the panel. This would be interesting. Um, if you had, if an average person had $100 a month to invest in the arts, where would you uh, recommend they explore? How would you uh, encourage them to make that decision? Sarah, you got oh, thoughts? Oh, man. Because everyone has a limited amount of time. Yeah. Everyone has limited resources. Mm -hmm. There was, a, a, for a short period of time, I worked at the Children's Museum, and they actually did a survey, like an exit survey while people were leaving. Uh, and looking at um, how frequently people actually go out and like take their families out to uh, a cultural event. Mm. And on average, people would go out once a year. Right. Like that's one time. And a lot of people, it's like, oh, going to IRT and seeing Christmas Carol, which is an excellent, fascinating experience. And that's great. And, uh, and, that's, and if that is your one outlet, okay, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I would recommend going to like i mean seeking out uh maybe smaller companies that could um uh, not not to not to say anything not to besmirch them at all right. they're great sure. um hire me great <laughs> um uh but more along the lines of finding those smaller artists and like maybe going to the hi-fi or going to chatterbox or uh finding smaller mm -hmm. venues that could really really use that um uh 
that investment of your time. And it seems like it's harder, becoming harder and harder for people to find, for people to take that leap into Mm -hmm. something they don't necessarily know. And as somebody who has written extensively, I think on the arts, it's harder and harder to find places where people are writing about the arts. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's harder to learn about those things and maybe take the chance. I, I want to piggyback on that a little bit, if that's please. okay. Yeah. And um, I'm t- speaking through the lens of like a small local artist that has like a family budget and I don't have an art budget. And um, through the lens of what I'm doing right now, which is this Kickstarter campaign for my album, and we did a Kickstarter campaign for our Something Wild album. Um, it has been like a complete game changer. Like that one, like that $100 mark, like that $100 mark that you're talking about, um, like has completely transformed like my art. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the Kickstarter contributions that I got for our last album made that album happen, happened on vinyl, digital, CD, allowed us to get in front of new venues we'd never been before in a way where they like trusted us and like we looked like we were established and we looked like we were like really legitimate and professional, which we are, but we'd never had the opportunity to, sh- <laughs> to, to create a package to show ourselves like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not saying Kickstarter necessarily, but I'm saying if you find like a local artist uh, a local like visual artist or a potter or a musician that you really love and support like there's nothing more special to me that, than those friendships that I've made with people that care about what I'm doing and that think mm. it's important you know so I would even just say like making friends with those artists like finding out ways to support them like whether they're doing a Kickstarter or releasing an album or like can you have a home concert for them like mm-hmm. what can mm-hmm. you do to make their work easier because you know, it's only really been since we released something wild and because of that Kickstarter that I don't have to be constantly hustling, looking for opportunities. It's really nice to be to like wake up in the morning on a day where I'm feeling really down and feeling like I have no energy and no momentum and to get an email being like, hey, would you like to make a music video for Tonic Ball 2018? And I'm like, what? Yes. Yeah. 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 And it would not have been without those Kickstarter supporters, without those people believing in what we were doing with something wild that we would have had that opportunity. Mm-hmm. So I would just say like, and like potters, I have a potter friend of mine where like every time my mug breaks, I go to that potter and I buy a piece of art from them. So right. finding those people that really align with your values and who you want to like invite their art in an intimate way into your life and just having a conversation with them about how to, to be supportive, you know? Yeah. And, that, and you know, and sharing with them what you do because there mm-hmm. might be things that they want to support you in too, you know? Yeah. We're humans like anything else. We're not just like asking for handouts here. We want to have relationships, so. And nobody's, nobody's asking you to buy no. art that you don't like. No. So, it, but there's ways <laughs> of finding art that does connect to you and there are ways to make it happen on hundred dollars a month. You and can keeping go to those first local artists and, local too. Yeah. So for like we're in Indianapolis, uh, Chicago's just a three hour drive away, but uh, and being an improv or comedy, mm. like so many people will go up that way. Uh, it but when you feel appreciated in the place where you are mm. where you are, that is huge. And like yeah. that's totally it. Because people ask me all the time, they're like, Oh, you'd be so great in Nashville or like I'm like, Why? Yeah. Why yeah. would I go to Nashville? There's it's so like much- I've got my own Nashville here and I actually know their names and they know my name and like it's it's really sweet how intimate the Indianapolis community is and I see that as an asset and not as a hindrance, you know? And there's a lot of shows you can see in, in terms of performance pieces for under, you know, for $15. Oh, yeah. for, 
for 20 bucks. There are ways to do that. There are a lot of people who say, oh, I love theater. And what they mean is they go to the Broadway series which of is, touring shows, which is great. Enjoy great that. Shows. That's more power to you. And I enjoy a lot of that too. But there's also other stuff mm -hmm. going on. And feel comfortable not liking things. Feel comfortable. The first time you go into an art gallery, if you feel like you have to like it and you don't, then you may never go to another one again, or it may be a long time before you do. Feel comfortable trying to process why you don't like something. Then you might be more comfortable going back again. You're not going to like everything that's out there. If you like everything that's out there, it's probably pandering to you. That's so. funny because I literally just had a conversation with my son this morning. He's seven, and he's kind of got an artistic mind already. He's like draws nonstop. He makes mm -hmm. his Lego creations. And this morning, he made this like donut factory Lego mm -hmm. creation, and he came to me sobbing because his sister didn't like it, mm -hmm. and she said she didn't like it. He was like, Mom, she said she didn't. <laughs> and I just had to hold them and I was like, I know, buddy. I know. And you know what? Do you like it? He was like, yeah. And I'm like, you know, I'm an artist too. And I know what that feels like. Mm -hmm. But it's way better for you to like your art than for other people. Right. And you can't please everyone. He was like, yeah. You know? Yeah. And, and that's true. And most of the time, you're pleasing others by um, doing what's authentic to you, even if they don't like that specific piece of art, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And that's what I like about it. Like art is about like having a conversation and it's not just about pleasing everyone, you know? We had a question, uh, what public art monument should Columbus install to honor native son, Mike Pence? <laughs> on the spot, ladies and gentlemen, he is on the spot. Oh man, you're mean. Um, <clears throat> that is, You're uh, mean. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think that uh, I would be in a better position to answer that at the end of his uh, term okay. uh, because we would be able to fully understand his contributions. Gotcha. <laughs> All right. I can rephrase the question a little bit. Who would win in a cage match, Mike Pence or Dan Quayle? Oh. Like, no rules. Two men walk in, one leaves. Who wins? I mean, you got to give it to Pence, right? You think so? Yeah. Yeah. I, that's my money. Is. What's the crowd think? Pence or Quail? No. You think Pence <laughs> would take a... Death, death, no. Wait, wait. Is, is Mother allowed to be there, though? <laughs> that is a legitimate question. <laughs> because then no other women can be in the room to watch. That's right. That's right. Uh, somebody wanted to know what was the job you, I guess that's me, uh, came out for in, in mid-90s. That was to edit a magazine called Arts Indiana Magazine. Um, long gone publication, uh, and we can tell those stories later. But Arts Indiana was a publication that um, tried to uh, write about the arts throughout the state. And uh, we realized pretty quickly that a lot of people in Terre Haute didn't care what was going on in South Bend. <laughs> but, uh, but it was a noble effort of a magazine that lasted about 16 years um, that I helped put into the grave. Okay. <laughs> no. no. <laughs> Long story. Okay. Um, uh, Do you need a drink? Are no, you okay? I'm good. I'm good. No, it's, it's a while ago. Uh, does the, um, it's Lou Harry Gets Real, remember? It's the name of the show. Fair enough. Um, does the population in Columbus, or let's say any population regionally, realize that they live in a literal mid-century modern mecca? Uh, do you get a sense that people fully appreciate where they are in Columbus? Yeah, uh, no. No? Yeah. Uh, when we did the first exhibition, you know, we, depends how you did the math, but we probably had about 20,000 people that came to Columbus to see it. Mm -hmm. We probably had two or three times that of people from Columbus coming downtown to see it. Mm. 
And there were so many people that told me that the town hadn't felt like that. They hadn't been downtown in a long time. They didn't realize how cool it was. And so it really changed it. In fact, it's part of the reason I'm excited to be here tonight is I don't think Indianapolis understands how mm -hmm. cool Columbus is. And, and the same as, you know, you were talking earlier about Franklin. It's yeah. not that far. Right. You know, and it's it's worth a trip. If you lived in any other large city, you wouldn't think twice about traveling 45 minutes to go see something interesting. In Philadelphia, you have to do that to get to the suburbs. Right. Yeah. You know. Um, Dallas is one hour away from Dallas. <laughs> that's right. You're stuck in traffic the whole time. <laughs> um, yeah, I took my son down after visiting Exhibit Columbus. Took my son down just to walk through it, and he had a blast. He was ready to move there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's the whole trick we're trying to pull, right? Right. Yeah. Bring him down. We'll, help, we'll help him find an apartment. Is it a challenge if there's? I mean, if you look at Indianapolis, those outside the area, basically there's four cities sort of to the corners if you head in diagonal directions. Each of the other three has a significant university. Yeah. How has how that not having that impacted Columbus, positive or negative? I think it, uh, those three, so we're talking about Purdue, uh, Muncie. Yeah, Ball State and Muncie, yeah. IU and Bloomington. And uh, West Lafayette. Right. And um, those are university sort of, you know, towns, and they're a, it's a different vibe. Mm -hmm. And so Columbus is a town that's, um, it's a town of makers, right? It's not really a farming town. Yeah. It's a town with, you know, Cummins is celebrating its 100th anniversary this year. They've been making engines and stuff. It's a really smart, hardworking town that's very practical. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't think many people use all of those adjectives when they describe a university town. Or, or, when, they, or when they describe artists. Right. You know, and that's sort of, it's such an interesting combination of those things. So I think really that the, the work ethic and the, the intelligence that's there is something that really uh, distinguishes Columbus in a way from a traditional sort of manufacturing town. One question I want to know that wasn't on any of the list is, I want to know more about Doug. How did you, how did you oh guys... Oh my gosh, how did you guys, I, I love Doug. He's Doug, great. And how, I, oh, how did, you guys, how did you guys start making music together? From your house, I was at a... Flying Squirrel Party, I think, and I had played Wait, the, fly, the, flying, the Flying Squirrel. That's another story. Yeah, another that's a whole other story. Flying Squirrel that. is the name of the house where I live. Yeah, long okay. story short, I was at her place for a party, and she was playing music, and I was playing music with some other folks that I was playing with at the time, and uh, we had a conversation. It's like, man, let's... let's well, the conversation yeah, was you, like you this. Yeah, probably remember better. Dad was like... <laughs> Yeah, well, because he used to play with one of my really good friends, Kate Lamont, from in Blueprint Music, and she moved away. And he was like, yeah, you know, since Kate moved away, he was like, I'm really kind of, it would be really great if I could just find a songwriter with, to collaborate with. You know, I write all this music. If someone could write lyrics. And I'm like, over here, he's talking to me, and I'm like, you know, well, like, I'm a songwriter. And <laughs> it's cool. Like, maybe we could just get together once. Like, no pressure. Like, you don't have to say yes now, you know? I was like, maybe we just want to get together. So... We did, and then the rest of history. Oh, very good. Oh, it's so good. It's so good what you what everybody can we, makes. Ah. Can we close things out with some more music? Sure. Yeah, and that's the first time I've ever sang in public in my entire existence. So what? I'm, I'm actually, I don't get, no, I like, I like being on the edge. I like being uncomfortable uh -huh. with pretty much everything I do. I like to <laughs> just push myself and be challenged and, um, yeah, I definitely am challenged being up here trying to sing a little bit. So Well, and it should be said that Doug, um, he is an amazing stained glass artist. He is a painter. He plays the fiddle, the banjo. He's constantly learning something new. And uh, yeah, it's inspiring being his friend. Amen. So thank you. Very good. Sarah Green and Doug Souter.
So this song, uh, Doug wrote the music to this song and gave it to me just like a gift, like here, do something with this. And I did something and it wasn't quite what he was expecting, but it's turned out really, really Much fun. Much better. Much better. <laughs> <laughs> this song is called Heart at War and it was written in 2016, if anybody remembers that year. Um, enjoy.
you. I want to thank, I want to thank our guests, Sarah Grain and Doug Souter. Richard McCoy and Frankie Bolda. Also, I'd like to thank our producer, Patrick Chastain, Miles Hall on sound. Big thanks to the management and staff of our sponsor, The Aristocrat. Plus, some um, special thanks, special thanks to the crew of The Orville, the only show I'm currently watching on TV. Thanks to Pattern Magazine for being Pattern Magazine and raising the bar. Thanks to Thornton Dial, and no thanks to Morley Safer. Thanks to whoever, three people appreciate that. Thanks to whoever at Wildwood High School made it possible for us to take field trips to see art in Philadelphia and New York. And a special thank you to all the good people who joined us for this party here at the Aristocrat. And for those listeners around the world of this podcast, thank you all. Keep an open heart and an open mind, and we'll see you next month. Do you hit the gong one more time? Do you hit the gong one more time? There we go. It's done!